Hello, and welcome to the Land and Climate Podcast. In this episode, I spoke to Kelly Stone from international NGO ActionAid. Kelly's an expert on the impacts of land use and climate change, and has recently returned from the COP27 climate talks in Egypt, where a big part of her work focused on the negotiations in developing and regulating so-called carbon markets. There are some really concerning decisions this time around about a lack of transparency and letting governments keep information, you know, declare it sort of proprietary without a lot of guardrails around what that should mean. I began by asking Kelly to explain her role at ActionAid. So I am a senior policy analyst with ActionAid USA, and I really work at the intersection of climate change, land use, and U.S. policy. I really focus particularly in the international space about where do land and climate policy intersect? How are we using that land? How is it being called upon to be part of climate action? How is land being impacted by climate change? What's happening to communities that are depending on that land? I also work on U.S. policy when it comes to climate change. You've just been at COP27. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you were working on and what was happening? COP stands for Conference of the Parties, which is like the fancy way of saying this is when all the governments who are part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement get together and talk about different decisions they still need to make under those agreements and progress reports on their commitments and and things like that. There also tends to be sort of a massive trade show that happens at the same time as the governments are meeting and having these formal discussions. So when I'm going to these meetings, usually I have two objectives. One is to really track and advocate for land rights and human rights in those formal negotiation spaces finding out what's happening, trying to advocate with different governments about, you know, really we should be doing this instead, or this is really good language, we want to keep it. And then the other piece is really tracking the big announcements that get made at the COP and making sure that we're getting our message out there about where the announcements are actually good things or where they're actually just greenwashed. You're talking about Indigenous people's rights. In a previous podcast, actually, we spoke to Dr. Kate Dooley, who, who'd been working on the Land Gap Report. It spoke quite a lot about, about the, the, the impacts of, of carbon removals on, and, and the, the predictions on, on, on the commitments that governments were, were kind of making on carbon removals and the impacts that that might have on Indigenous people's rights. Was that something that you discussed at COP? Yeah, I think the, the report that Dr. Dooley put together on the Land Gap is, is, I think, a really essential piece of research. And this is something that we've been quite concerned about actually since 2015 with the Paris Agreement. We are so late in stopping our fossil fuel emissions and stopping the emissions that governments are looking for more and more shortcuts. And that means that they are looking to use the land sector to try to avoid changing business as usual, or at least delay using business as usual or changing business as usual. I mean, from a climate perspective, as I'm sure doc, you know, Dr. Julie was talking about, there's not enough land to actually do that. We, you know, the land sector can't compensate for ongoing emissions. But one of the things that we're concerned about is that even the attempt to try to do that, that kind of demand for land fundamentally changes markets. And so that drives 
corporate land grabs, which we've seen with the bioenergy expansion, there's a real risk that if we're trying to use the land sector, the demand spikes for forests, demand spikes for agricultural land, corporations and big countries go in and try to take it. And the communities that are living there right now and that are depending on it get hurt. And so can you take us through some of the discussions that you had at COP around that and maybe what some of the balance are, particularly around carbon markets? Yeah. And so carbon markets is one of the areas that we're really concerned about this. With the proliferation of net zero goals, we're also seeing then when there's actually details provided, which isn't very often, we're seeing a lot of what we call offsets being put forward. And so that's when, so you know, a company or a country is saying, OK, well, we're not going to stop these emissions, so we're going to buy an offset instead. And those offsets can come through a lot of different forms. It can be a lot of different types of climate action. But the one that we were particularly concerned about at COP27 was offsets for removals. The part of the formal negotiations this time was governments starting to talk about the carbon markets under what we would call Article 6.4 which is a part of the Paris Agreement. So this is the carbon market under the UNFCCC that would be sort of at the project level. So any entity could be buying this carbon offset from another entity. So a company in the US or a pension fund in the UK could buy an offset from the Republic of Congo. So one of the pieces that we're talking about this time is how would you count removals or so-called removals towards a carbon offset under this market mechanism. And the first sort of recommendation from the supervisory body that's overseeing this market for 6.4 had a hugely expansive definition of removals. Everything was getting counted. It was covering not just storage in rocks and the land sector, which is concerning enough, both from a climate and human rights perspective, but also oceans and products. There was no meaningful consultation with civil society, there was not anywhere close to sufficient consideration of the huge risks that this would create for communities. So we were pushing really hard to have governments say, this was too fast, we need to go back and do this again, with ideally what would have been better guidance to the supervisory body to do a better job of this. So that's a kind of narrowing in definition to start with. What we want is a narrower definition Ideally, we wouldn't be giving carbon credits for this at all. It's an incredibly risky (laughs) greenwashing thing to do that could really undermine the integrity of these markets. You know, I mean, we're pretty concerned about these market approaches anyway. But if you're a fan of the markets, then I'd also say that when you're talking about this expansive of a definition, when you're including removals, you're really risking undermining any kind of integrity you think that they might have. Because there's a real risk that these removals don't work. That's a major problem with the technology. Um, and when you're talking about the land sector, and again, you know, the land sector can't actually compensate for ongoing fossil fuel emissions. There are good things that you know can and need to be done in the land sector, but there's a real risk of lack of permanence. There are problems with including removals at all. There are bigger problems with including this expansive of a definition of removals, and especially without any real consideration of what are the human rights pieces that we need to have, what are the ways that we're making sure that the rights of Indigenous peoples are respected. You know, that hadn't been sufficiently considered at all. 
And I w- wanted to understand a little bit about how binding these kinds of definitions are. What does something like Article 6.4 actually mean, you know, when it, and when does it get kind of ratified or, you know, it'd be great to, to understand that a bit better. Yeah, and this is also because it gets quite messy because Article 6.4 is not the only carbon market that's really being discussed right now. So what makes 6.4 a little bit unique is that it's coming under the Paris Agreement. So it's part of that UNFCCC structure. There are also a lot of voluntary carbon markets out there for that companies are already buying carbon credits in because they want to appear as if they're doing climate action. And so there's a lot of concern that those markets are racing ahead without sufficient oversight, especially of, you know, independent, scientifically rigorous third parties. Yeah, what makes 6.4 unique is it's under the UNFCCC. So the definitions in, in that are agreed to here aren't necessarily binding on those voluntary markets. And I'd also say that, I mean, 6.4 is voluntary. So no one is obligated to buy or sell these credits. Um, and we'd certainly urge countries not to. But it will be important in that it does sort of set the standard. If they're incredibly weak rules and, you know, social protections, it gets much harder to pressure the voluntary markets to be better. It's a bit of a game to try to limit the harm, honestly. Where are we now then after after these talks? We were partially successful um, in that the governments did send back the recommendations and say essentially to do it again. And there's also going to be an opportunity for civil society input in the spring. What didn't happen was that language around all those human rights pieces and giving more guidance to the supervisory body that fell out of the final and adopted draft of the language. It's going to be really important to be building the pressure on the supervisory body because they have essentially been told to do it again, but without a tremendous amount of guidance on what they need to fix. It's going to be really important that, you know, all of the reasons that countries have voiced in the formal negotiations and outside on why they said, no, this needs to be done again. Hopefully civil society can be pushing all of that and all of the human rights concerns into the process so that we get a better outcome next year at the COP28. And do you see this as a kind of wider problem that you get anyway in wider COP negotiations, that there isn't that much consideration of these kinds of rights, of Indigenous people's rights in general discussions, that it's much more, I don't know, a little bit more technical, a little bit more, a little bit colder and not taking into those kinds of views? That can be a problem in any governing space, and particularly when you're talking about one that is often literally so physically removed from the people whose lives are being impacted. But I think that's been one of the critical roles about for civil society is that there is human rights language in the Paris Agreement because there was a cross-constituency long-term effort to really force it. And I do think that that language matters and that that win has made a difference and gives us tools both now in future cops, but then also at the domestic level to really fight for what's actually needed. It's easy in these kinds of processes and when you're talking about climate change in general to fall down a rabbit hole of jargon and, you know, really technical pieces and forget that what we're actually talking about is people's lives. Are you optimistic about how things are going to develop on this? Um, Do you have a kind of view on how things are going to move? 
it's too early to say. I mean, I, it's too early to give up. I am pretty skeptical that these markets can deliver any climate action. I think in the history of carbon markets, they have done far more harm than any possible good. That does not mean that we cannot make a difference in our work over this next year to try to bring those human rights pieces forward, to try to push the transparency pieces, to try to you know, limit the harm. I do believe that that matters and that can make a difference. We should be honest about what carbon markets are and they aren't a solution. Just one more question around it. I mean, I, there had been a lot of talk in previous years about kind of the Mark Carney-led moves on carbon markets. Do you have anything to say about that and how that has fit, fitted in? I mean, I think that falls into sort of more of the voluntary pieces. And there have been a lot of initiatives. Some have been better than others over particularly the past year, but truthfully, the past like several decades, actually. One thing that I think was really interesting that was announced at COP was the Secretary General's high-level expert group released recommendations on net zero um, and what net zero pledges should include. And that included a discussion of offsets. And one of the interesting things I thought about that was, you know, they didn't totally reject offsets, which would be my preference. But they did say essentially that you should be doing your share of the work towards a 1.5 degree pathway with limited to no overshoot. And that should include interim targets for 2025, 2030 and 2035, which is the key window for 1.5 action. And you shouldn't be using credits for that part of the pathway. So your targets for those years should not be reliant on carbon credits. And I think that's a step forward in recognizing that we cannot offset our way out of this crisis. It needs to be a plan to be phasing out fossil fuels and emissions. Do you think the COPs now have been overhyped in the sense that, you know, there, there's too much anticipation around each individual COP? I mean, it used to, used to be that, you know, it was going to be every five years that there was kind of a big event, in a sense, post-Paris, and that now there, were, there was still quite a lot of coverage about, about Sharm el-Sheikh. It's now going to the UAE next year. Is there too much? Do you think there should be some focus, else, focus should be elsewhere? I don't know that it's too much, but I think that focusing only on the cops risks missing where the action needs to happen. Um, Like, I I think that, you know, this is a global problem. It's a multilateral problem. Like, I believe that there needs to be spaces like the cop for that conversation to take, you know, step forward. But the Paris Agreement is structured to be very bottom up. Like it was intentionally written so that governments were going to sort of do what they were going to do at home, bring it in their NDC and their national adaptation plans and hopefully their climate finance commitments to, you know, the COP and then say, okay, here's where we are now. Where do we need to go? There is a risk in sort of making the COPs the moment where things get, you know, where there's going to be a singular breakthrough that's going to solve the problem, that's not what the COP is going to be able to deliver. It can deliver meaningful wins like the loss and damage fund or meaningful setbacks. But there was a lot of noise about the fossil fuel language. You know, there was increased support verbalized for an equitable phase out of fossil fuels that didn't make it into the final text, which is disappointing. But for everyone who was disappointed, for the governments, they could go home and start an equitable phase out of fossil fuels in their domestic context and then bring that next year and say, see, this is what we were doing. Now you need to do it too. 
in the moment of COP, sometimes we miss the importance of that, you know, long-term domestic action that, you know, that's where the actual activities are going to happen that are actually going to save us. And that's driven by communities. Nothing that happens at COP28 is going to be the singular thing that keeps the 1.5 alive goal, right? There are important things that need to happen at COP28, but it also matters what people are doing at home between now and then. 6.4 wasn't the only carbon market being discussed, actually. At the COP, there was also discussions around 6.2, which is where governments are trading. That's also really important because, you know, if one country is saying, oh, well, we're going to do a bit more, so we're going to sell it, you know, sell our offset to rich developed country, that could have really important implications for the Paris regime as well. And there are some really concerning decisions this time around about a lack of transparency and letting governments keep information, you know, declare it sort of proprietary without a lot of guardrails around what that should mean. Um, So, I mean, I think carbon markets as a whole are something that we collectively are going to be needing to keep an eye on because, you know, the atmosphere only cares what it sees. So we can put whatever numbers on paper we want. You know, if we actually break the carbon budget on emissions, that's what matters. It doesn't matter whatever fancy accounting tricks we try on the ground. That's a pretty important piece. And I think also what happens with the UN Secretary General's recommendations on net zero, there was a huge push around Glasgow to get net zero, big companies and countries to make long-term net zero pledges. But a lot of those have been quite empty promises. And the UN Secretary General outlined a lot of requirements that I think would take those pledges forward in being more meaningful. Things like having an actual plan to phase out fossil fuels, things like being really transparent about your emissions. And so you're separating out, you know, this is where my fossil fuel emissions, here's what I'm sequestering in the land sector. All those pieces are really important, you know, not over relying on carbon credits, but there is going to be a lot of pressure to not hold pledges to that standard. What happens with that? those recommendations, how net zero pledges are evaluated going forward um, is going to matter a lot towards ambition as well. And actually, could you explain a little bit more, give us a little bit more detail about 6.2 and how that kind of might play out? I mean, that, I actually think that's really interesting. So like I said, this is government to government. So there's no private sector entity involved. Um, And that also means it matters a lot for NDCs. Those are the nationally determined contributions. That's essentially how we are capturing what is actually happening on the ground. And so if country A buys an offset from country B and a lot of information is considered proprietary and kept secret, that might undermine how transparent the NDCs are. And that can make it hard for us to know are we actually on track (laughs) or do we think we're on track, but then there's all this fuzzy stuff that's proprietary that isn't publicly available that might mean we're not. How does it actually become proprietary in the first place? I mean, under what grounds can it become proprietary? So that was one of the things that came through in this last text, and I might need to pull the language, but essentially that's the concern is that there's not like specific criteria that would limit what countries declare proprietary. So they could be quite aggressive in declaring lots of things proprietary. 
that then adds up to having sort of this black box that you can't see about what actually happened there. And that's really concerning going into things like the global stock take, which is this process under the Paris Agreement where we're supposed to, you know, essentially be totaling up what's happened towards all the Paris goals and where are we falling short. Um, The short answer is we're falling short everywhere right now. But the details do matter quite a bit (laughs) in trying to, to think about how we move forward. And so if too much of this information becomes proprietary, you know, it's not just the individual projects that we'll be concerned about, but sort of an aggregate, we could be missing a huge piece of emissions, essentially. Thanks to Kelly Stone for her time. If you'd like to read more about land use and offsets, there's some further reading on our podcast blurb. And as Land and Climate Review, we've now published our first collection of articles and interviews on the subject of negative emissions. You can find a link to this collection on the blurb and on our website at www.landclimate.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast this year, and we wish you all a happy Christmas and New Year. Thank you. Thank you.